if somebody tells me this is impossible, I always think that it still might be possible and uh, try to find ways around. Where would the world be without the scientists who look beyond conventional wisdom and try to solve the unsolvable problems? This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard Hartmut Mikkel, the 1988 chemistry laureate, who was recognised for the groundbreaking work towards determining the three-dimensional structure of a photosynthetic reaction centre. This was the first membrane protein structure to be mapped by X-ray crystallography. He was awarded together with Robert Huber and Johann Diesenhofer. Since 1987, Mikkel has been the director of the Molecular Membrane Biology Department at the Max Planck Institute for Biophysics in Frankfurt am Main and Professor of Biochemistry at the Goethe University Frankfurt. When he was awarded the prize, he was only 40 years old. And being a Nobel laureate hasn't always been helpful to his scientific career. With having Nobel Prize, you're much more expensive. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Areces. Hartmut Mikkel speaks about his working-class background, discovering his love of science and travel in a public library, and why he's remained true to his native Germany. But first, he talks about his visit to China at the very beginning of the pandemic. So I was in Wuhan from uh, January 3rd to January 5th in 2020, just when it started. Of course, there were the first news that something is going on in Wuhan. So we were, we were asking the people, at least I was asking the people, and they told me it's a hoax. That is not true. Actually, the, the people who started that rumor uh, have been arrested and you are safe. Goodness. That was the message which we got from 50% of the people and the other 50% said, oh, yes, there is something new, but it's not dangerous. Don't worry. And so did you do anything about this or did you just listen and kind of get on with your business? Yeah, we just got on with our business. Actually, we, we were wearing face masks when we arrived, but in Wuhan, nobody was wearing face masks and we got this message that there is no danger. So we took off our face masks also. And I, I guess you got out before it became difficult to leave Wuhan. That's true. That's true. We'll return to the world of alternative facts later on in the conversation. But now, let's learn a bit more about Hartmut Mikkel's path to becoming a scientist. I'd like to begin by finding out why you turned to science in the first place. Was there something in your childhood that made you a scientist? Were you born a scientist? I was not born as a scientist. I, I should say I'm from a worker's family. So we have no academic background in the family. My father was a person who made furniture in a factory. He was the person who cut the wood in a factory. And my mother made clothes for women. Mm -hmm. So she was a women tailor. And uh, life was not so easy because... Uh, my parents had uh, borrowed a lot of money in order to buy a house, you know, and there was no money available. 
And what we, for instance, try is to produce as much food as possible ourselves. So we harvested. That was, was quite often myself. We harvested maybe 400 kilograms potatoes. <laughs> That's hard work. <laughs> hard work. We, we harvested each uh, September, October, harvested maybe uh, 1.5 tons of apples to make juice and uh, cider out of it for my father. And we, we grew all the vegetable, vegetable ourselves. In addition, we had chicken and rabbits for producing eggs and meat. Yeah, well, you were real smallholders. Gosh. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's hard work for a child, trying to fit in around play and schoolwork and everything else. Yeah, yeah. How did you feel about it? It was somehow okay. But you, 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 of course, you, we saw that, my brother and myself, we saw that uh, the other children didn't have to work that much as we, did. we had to work. Yeah, okay, but it had to be done. and um, It had to be done, yeah. And you were good children. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So how did that... How did that childhood translate into uh, what you became? It was mainly that I went, maybe age 10 or 11, maybe 10, I went to the lending library of the city and I started to read quite a lot. So I, I read about uh, four books a week, partly science, quite often foreign countries, history, geology, chemistry, and so on. At the end, I ended up that my favorite field was chemistry. Gosh, this sounds like it was entirely self-driven. It was just a, a desire, a curiosity. Oh, it was curiosity. I always wanted to find out how things work mm. and how they are composed. Well, how lovely that the library was there to uh, satisfy your, your curiosity. So, okay, so chemistry grabbed you from the books. Not only chemistry, as I said, foreign countries. I read every book which I could get about New Guinea, also about Ethiopia, <laughs> also about the Amazon River. <laughs> and I was sitting quite often uh, in front of a book and having a look at the map of Amazon and reading that I was there. Uh, there's a lot to be said for armchair travel. <laughs> 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 Have you ever been to those places now that you've grown up? Actually, Amazon River, the closest place I came to was Colombia. Yeah? Colombia is a little part of the Amazon River. And I also went to, to Argentina and to Brazil, but uh, in the south of Brazil, near the Iguazu, Iguazu Falls mm -hmm. and the border to Argentina. Ecuador, I also went, went once, including the Galapagos Islands, very, was, was very interesting for nature lovers. Marvellous, marvellous. Okay, so um, we're building a picture of this um, scientifically literate person who would long to also travel the world. So after school, you had to do military service. Yes. Was that something you enjoyed? Uh, it was a very interesting experience because, uh, you know, we had a company of 180 people and there were six people from had a high school and the rest of them was handicraft people and workers and farmers. And uh, they were all from the southwest part of Germany. But nevertheless, I had problems to understand their dialect, their accent. <laughs> yeah? It was amazing. In particular, if they came from from the southern Black Forest near the Swiss border, and to, you had to cope with them, and uh, also you, a unique experience which I would not like to miss. After a normal infantry service, I got a training as a tank commander. But one bad thing was uh, this was during the time 1968 when the Warsaw Treaty nation states invaded. Czech Republic, and uh, we were on alert, and we were not allowed to leave 
the barracks for oh, close to half a year. Uh, that was a, a foretaste of lockdown then, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> lockdown. But how interesting to be thrown together with such a mix of people. You know, I suppose once one becomes an academic, you kind of live in a rarefied atmosphere of other people with similar interests. And that's not wholly good. So what do you think you learned from being in this mixed company for this time? Oh, you, you, learn, you learn about the behavior of other people. I was amazed how many people believed in ghosts. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I thought we are educated. They are also educated, and uh, they don't believe in, in ghosts. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And then, after that, then I suppose you kind of just fell into the world that obviously became very quickly your own—the world of universities and research. And actually, before the, when deciding what to study, it was clear that uh, I was going to to study science because uh, I thought this is really objective, an objective field. And uh, whereas I would say humanities, you cannot judge precisely what is good and what is not good, things like this. So I thought this is better in science. And I thought about what to study. I thought uh, geology, mineralogy against biochemistry. So I went to the advisor and uh, the advisor told me that in Baden-Württemberg, in the state of Baden-Württemberg, 40 geologists finish their study every year, but only two of them find a job. So this was then very clear that I would study biochemistry. <laughs> and uh, biochemistry had the problem that there was in West Germany, because we were still divided in East and West, West Germany had only one university where the curriculum of biochemistry existed, and that was Tübingen. So I applied for that, and uh, I got primarily a message that they don't accept any student this term because they are completely overbooked. And uh, then I registered a new curriculum in Hanover and uh, where I could have started. But then a few weeks later, I got the message that they still take 15 students in Tübingen. So they took 15 students and actually 14 of them were from military service uh, because they had to be taken up to be accepted uh, according to uh, the conditions which existed when I started with military service. Mm -hmm. And actually it turned out that uh, they had had 624 applications and only 15 were accepted. Oof. Why were you one of the 15? Actually, of course, my, uh, my high school degree was, was very, very good. And uh, I had some bonus due to the military service. Well, it's it's lucky for the world of structural biology that they <laughs> that they brought you to Tübingen then. Yeah, yeah. But Tübingen was not a end of structural biology. No, but it started you on the track, right? <laughs> Biochemistry in general, yeah. Were you immediately happy and kind of felt at home in this world? Yes, I had no problem. Actually, one point was that the first semester was a very tough semester. It, it was a regular 40-hour job of lectures and practicals, and you had to prepare your, your, your other stuff, and, uh, and they put lots of pressure onto you. But I think the pressure was mainly in order to select the hardest-working students, and those who are not interested succumb to the pressure and give up. Would it be too much to say that you'd learned to work hard as a child on your family, small holding? Yes, really. One can say that, huh? 
Almost from the outset of his scientific career, Hartmut Mikkel took on one of the great challenges in biochemistry at the time, the crystallization of membrane proteins. The process, which was long deemed impossible, is necessary in order to determine the three-dimensional structure of the protein by X-ray crystallography. Mikkel first experimented with the membrane protein bacterial rhodopsin and made some progress, but it wasn't until he switched to the protein driving photosynthesis that he had his big breakthrough. Photosynthetic proteins are an excellent source of material because they are abundant. They are the most abundant membrane proteins in the world and they are colored. So you have a look, you can have a look at them and uh, if they don't feel happy, they change their color. <laughs> so for instance, even bacteriodopsin, if it is not happy, it, it changes from purple to red to yellow. And similar things happen from uh, photosynthetic systems that uh, the chlorophylls are lost and they change their color and uh, you can get them in huge amounts. I selected one bacterium in, in particular, which is nowadays called Blastochloris viridis. When I started, it was called Rhodopseudomonas viridis. And uh, it also had some kind of two-dimensional crystals in the membrane. Developed a procedure to isolate it and to try for crystallization the methods which I had optimized for bacterial rhodopsin. And this worked from the very beginning. So without the experience with bacterial rhodopsin, which at my time was a failure, was, uh, was a, led to the success with the photosynthetic reaction center. Well, the very fact that you were trying this, though, is remarkable because, as I understand it, back then, the standard dogma on this was that it would be impossible to produce crystals from a membrane protein. They were simply too large, too unwieldy. Too, too unstable, too, too large, and there's, there was the idea that it is there's no rationale behind to, to get crystals out of them. Hmm. So <laughs> the obvious question is, why did you try? <laughs> I mean, if I <laughs> maybe that's in my personality. If somebody tells me this is impossible, I always think that it still might be possible, and uh, try to do to to find ways around. There's an art in that, isn't there? Because I suppose sometimes things really are impossible, and you, you, yeah, yeah, you, sure. You're, sometimes you're just, they are impossible. <laughs> so then you're just stubborn. But as it, but in this case, you were wise. It's choosing your impossible problem. Yeah. You mentioned that you like to tackle big problems. Is that something you learnt or is that innate? Innate, I would say. Of course, it's always a risky problem because uh, when you are without a safe position and you try risky things and fail, you may lose your job. And uh, of course, you can have a bread and butter project, but a bread and butter project is not interesting. <laughs> so you really go for the really challenging, high-hanging fruits. Together with Hans Diesenhofer and Robert Huber, you discovered the structure of the Photosynthetic Reaction Center and were quite soon afterwards awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Uh, it was astonishingly fast. Even the publication which we had December 1985 in Nature was not complete because we didn't have the sequences. And actually getting the sequences was much more tedious than doing the X-ray structure. The membrane proteins and uh, DNA isolation, DNA sequencing was just being established. So we had to learn the new methods. 
and uh, how to identify the genes and to sequence the genes. And when we published the structure, there were a substantial part of two protein subunits, we missed the sequence. So we could only trace the chain, but not add, put into the model the right amino acids. And so you had to follow up on that and get it right. Yeah, we had to follow, we had to follow up and, uh, you know, the, to, to complete the sequences and so on. So goodness, uh, the Nobel Prize in 1988, you were very young, just 40? 40, 40. Yeah. But what does it do to you receiving the Nobel Prize at such a young age when your research career is in the middle of blossoming and... Let me first say, people believe uh, when you have the Nobel Prize, you have a lot of money for research, but this is not true. Actually, before the Nobel Prize, I was considered to be a rising star and everybody liked to support me and to provide me money for research. When I had the Nobel Prize, I had fulfilled the expectations and it was very tough to get research money now. At the same time, I just became a director at the Max Planck Institute. So everybody thought, this guy has enough money, so he doesn't need more money for research. So this was just the opposite effect. On the other side, before getting the Nobel Prize, I had maybe close to 20 requests from American universities to take a professorship at their university. That included Harvard, included University of Chicago, and other leading universities. Yeah, And after that, after having the Nobel Prize, I only got two requests. Two questions whether I would join an American university as a professor. That's fascinating. So that first effect, the drop in funding, if you like, is exactly the reverse, I think, of what we understand that uh, Alfred Nobel intended with the prize, that the, the money was supposed to allow a young person who is, or an, anyway, a, a scientist who was in the midst of discovering things to continue unfettered. That's a, a, an extraordinary um, result. And then I would have just assumed that with the prize, suddenly the job offers would be flooding in even more than before. But no, why do you think that was? Why do you think things dried up? Uh, because you were having Nobel Prize, you're much more expensive. <laughs> before the Nobel Prize, uh, if you go to a university, the US university, what they offer you is a pretty high personal salary. And apart from that, you get a maybe a part-time secretary and many square meters of empty lab. And then you have to apply for research grants and to fill the lab. And of course, American universities take a substantial amount of overhead, which goes to the university. So uh, they even earn money from your, from your research. And uh, of course, this is how the system works. And you don't have really permanent research money in the U.S., you didn't have it at that time. Maybe it changed slightly now. And with the Howard Jewish system, it became better. You can start also long-term projects, but really risky long-term projects to start off in the United States is not that easy because uh, you have to present results pretty soon. Hmm. This is easier in Germany, in Europe in general, in particular at the Max Planck Society, where you get a very good amount of basic research money, which you can spend upon your will. Hartmut Mikkel speaks to Adam Smith from his home in Frankfurt, where he manages to remain undistracted by his 11-year-old daughter practicing on the piano and his devoted poodle Alada beckoning him to come and play. He's had a distinctly European science career, 
But does he regret not trying his wings elsewhere? So I suppose one consequence, I mean, I, I don't know what, what your intentions had been, but one consequence of receiving the prize was perhaps that you stayed in Germany. Yes. It's hard to think about um, how things would have been had you not stayed, but how do you feel about that decision taken, what, just a, a little over 30 years ago to remain there? I think it, it was it was perfect. They come the director of the Max Planck Institute to have uh, substantial resources to do research. You can decide which projects. You don't have to write grant applications. And uh, you, you can hire people and you, uh, you, you can start off a research project as you like. Hmm. But scientifically, are you pleased that you got the prize when you did? Or would you perhaps have preferred them to wait a little longer after 1985? I never really thought, never really thought about it, but it's obvious when I would have received the prize 20 years later, I would have been a more successful scientist. Primarily due to the fact that when you got the prize, uh, you are a person of public interest and uh, you talk to journalists quite a lot and you have much less time to think about science. Later on, of course, this changes again, but nevertheless, you talk to different parts of the societies. You become an advisor for this and that. You are asked to spend your time with this and that committee, which without the Nobel Prize, you would, I would not have been asked. And as a result of that, as I already mentioned, uh, you have much less time to think about your research program, your research projects. Yes. Involuntarily, you become an advocate for science, to a certain extent, a science policymaker. That, in a way, that perhaps puts a an onus on the prize-awarding institutions to choose people who might fit well into that role. But I don't think that comes into their thinking at all. <laughs> no, it's not at at all. all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. But it's a fascinating thing to talk about and think about. It's a stark statement that you would have been a better scientist without the prize. It's something to reflect on, isn't it? More successful. <laughs> More successful. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes. Okay. Not better. Yes. Quite right. Yes. It's just when you say more successful, what do you mean? What 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 measures success? I would say uh, getting new structures, getting new mechanisms out of it. Of course, uh, I'm a person who is, as a biochemist, interested in understanding mechanisms. I'm not a structure biologist, just connecting structures. So once we have a structure. We work on for many, many years in order to understand how this enzyme works, how this protein works. There's more required than just getting a structure. And we also, of course, took up a number of new projects. We invested lots of efforts into method development. And I think that method development is still a major issue for making progress. And uh, I just would like to mention one example about method development. When I did the X-ray data collection of the reaction center crystals, we used photographic films to record the X-ray diffraction data. And one exposure took about 10 to 12 hours. And I took two exposures every day. And I had to take maybe 120 photographs. This means that I had to do at least uh, in 60 days, two photographs a day in order to get one data set. So this took me two to three months to get one data set. And nowadays, you go to the synchrotron and the whole procedure is done in eight seconds. Can you imagine? There was really the progress in the method was that people developed much better detectors. We don't have to use photographic films anymore. Cryocrystallography was invented and you could use synchrotron beams with much higher intensity 
which lead to speeding up the whole process. This was, of course, could not be foreseen when I worked on, on the reaction center in the 80s. And as a result of that, now most important protein complexes in photosynthesis had their structure determined. I thought in the 80s, photosystem 2, for instance, is so complicated and complex, you still should be able to work on that problem when you are after your retirement as an emeritus. Well, this is passé. Everything is, is done. <laughs> it's a lovely story of progress. Um, the fact that you chose to stay in Europe, and you've seen European science develop, and you've seen science develop in the US, for instance, and elsewhere in the world. Is there, do you think, a substantial difference in the way science is done in different places? Do you see shifts? There is a substantial, substantial way. If you compare the United States, the competition is higher. And this is due to the fact that when you are a professor, you have only very limited resources in your research is based on grant applications. And the American scientists primarily try to hire the best ones from, from the world and give them freedom. But quite often, as I said, they have to apply for the money, apply for research money. And uh, this makes them very hard. And, and But also what they do is they jump very fast on new developments, whereas science in Europe is much more conservative. You stay much longer in your project. And as a result of that, uh, many discoveries are quite often made in the U.S. But for instance, what concerns method development, where you need much more time, is mainly done in Europe. There are not many methods which were invented or discovered in the United States. That's mainly a European business. Hmm. If you think of electron microscopy, X-ray crystallography, nuclear magnetic run spectroscopy, all these things have been invented by Europeans. But when it comes to the usage of these techniques, it was the Americans who used the techniques much faster and better than the Europeans who invented the techniques. So what should European science policymakers science funders do to redress the balance? Actually, what we have, at, in, in, at least in German universities, we have our professors at German universities, they have two big empires. Quite often they get a number of, let's say, postdoc positions, let's say scientist positions, and the scientists can stay six or 10 years and then they have to leave and look for their own position in the, in the research system. And because of that, the number of professors, independent professors in, uh, in Europe, at least in Germany, is limited. So if I look, for instance, to a biochemistry department in the United States, then they have more than 20 professors. In the entire university, in Frankfurt, for instance, they have maybe about eight professors in biochemistry, all over different faculties. In the United States, they have a, probably a biochemistry faculty in science department and one in the, and another one in the medical department. So there are many, many more independent research professors in the US compared to the European system. So we should break things up, distribute. Make things up, make the professorship smaller and, and create more professorships. And it's also more positions for the next generation of scientists. That's a huge worry for young scientists coming up, finding their path. Absolutely. I'd just like to finish with um, with discussing this um, this role as a science ambassador that was thrust upon you in 1988, and a question you get all the time: How do you tackle the abundance, the apparently increasing abundance of incorrect beliefs about evidence, the belief in 
false information, fake news, etc. That is really a big danger. I don't know how we can correct this. Of course, uh, one way is one has to, uh, if you make these claims or statements, you have to prove and you have to show the evidence for these statements. People who don't believe in global warming or they don't believe in, in, in greenhouse gases. And now we have the people who, who claim that coronavirus doesn't cause the disease and things like this and don't like to be vaccinated. And this really is a general tragedy. And I feel with respect to the letter, we are now discussing in Germany whether people should be enforced to get vaccinated. And at the end, I fear we have to start an enforced vaccination in Germany. With 30% unvaccinated people, we will not be able to stop the pandemics. But how do you talk to people who, as we were saying earlier, um, believe in things that uh, perhaps you know are not supported by evidence and many things that are not supported by evidence and and not only believe in them, but want to somehow deny the evidence that is presented to them. Of course, people have studied this problem and they gave up with a number of answers. And uh, I think that you have to address the emotions of the people and they cannot be convinced by scientific facts. That is the big fear. Well, that's an important consideration that, yes, it's presumably very sensible to think that, yes, scientific facts are not going to appeal to everybody, presumably there's a sizable proportion of the population who at the moment anyway, are just never going to listen to that. So yes, there must be a different way through to them. Actually, what I think, what uh, at the end I would find it very interesting to see whether these people who don't believe in scientific facts, whether they have a certain gene combination. <laughs> so it's, it, it may be in their genes that they don't believe in scientific facts. Maybe. <laughs> if this is true, what to do? <laughs> Hartmut, it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very, very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you, Adam. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Hartmut Mikkel, you can go to nobelprize.org where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yulier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for more listening, check out our earlier conversation with Joachim Frank, a fellow German chemistry laureate, whose life and career followed a markedly different path. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.